Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 18 and also 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, Reading first from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Second Corinthians 5, 9-21 So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore All have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. These are two wonderful passages that are actually linked in the schedule of readings that we follow at this church. And as you may remember, we've left Pentecost, and Pentecost has, Pentecost has happened, and now after the season after Pentecost is commonly referred to as ordinary time. And during uh, ordinary time, we focus on a number of themes. One of them is Christian growth and maturity in discipleship. One of the major stumbling blocks at the point of Every new believer's life is the command by Jesus Christ that you must forgive. And not understanding how Jesus intends that must forgive to be, un- to be understood, to be conveyed, to be lived, we often think that unless we are ready to forgive these people that we can't follow Christ, but we are completely ignorant of the fact that in Christ, God has forgiven us. And that forgiveness doesn't come from ourselves, but rather it comes because of his forgiveness for us. And so today we're going to look at these two passages in light of the, uh, their tie together as this idea of debts and forgiveness, the, uh, sins and trespasses which need to be set aside and, and not held on an account. This is a very, uh, these two passages are very, filled with the language of economics, the language of accounting. Uh, Debts are incurred and things are used up, things are spent. And this is a very important uh, perspective to use when we're looking at this parable because through this parable, Jesus intends to speak of a spiritual reality by which he can only give, uh, you know, pointers to or references to. It's kind of like you and I, we know for a fact that the, the forces of gravity work. If I were to drop this Bible in the air and let go of it, it would immediately begin accelerating to the earth and the earth accelerating to it. And um, we know that gravity works, and yet we can't see how it works, but we see its effects, Right? Have you ever taken two magnets and taken the North Pole or the South Pole of those magnets and put them against each other? They oppose each other. And the reason they oppose each other is there is an unseen magnetic force at work. And so you can feel the, to me, it kind of feels like jelly in the, you know, ethereal jelly when you are holding the magnets together and trying to push them together and they, they're pushing apart. You don't know that magnetism works all the time. You can't see it working all the time, but you can see the effects. And and there are times in which Jesus uses parables to speak of a spiritual reality, which we may not be able to perceive with our natural senses, but he uses a metaphor. He uses a, a story to tell us of something that is true, that we may be blind to. Just because you're blind to it doesn't mean it's not working and it's not in effect. And so this parable and understanding this parable, applying it to life, applying it to the gospel is mightily important. We're going to look at 
this forgiveness and Jesus's warnings concerning those who do not forgive, as well as the, our epistle reading today, the promise of the future judgment that's coming. The reason Jesus Christ gives us this parable is to warn us that we should not disdain or, or treat, as, treat as meaningless or treat as futile or, or worthless the, the forgiveness that is in Christ. If we do not avail ourselves of that forgiveness and do not allow that forgiveness to extend to our brothers and sisters, we will not see God eternally. We will, we will not be in his presence. We will be judged as wicked and evil like this servant was. And so it's vitally important that we begin to understand the radical nature of this forgiveness. So with that in mind, I want to look at seven elements of these two passages. We're, we're also going to be looking at some other passages of scripture and if you want to turn to the references, you can. I won't, unfortunately, be able to give you enough time if you're hunting for all of them. But, but uh, rest assured, they are there. They're quoted correctly, and um, they're, they're quoted uh, intentionally. So with that in mind, these seven ideas, I want to look at the perfect, perfect nature of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ commands Peter to use as he's forgiving his brother. I want to look at the sure judgment of works. That is, you will be judged at the end of your life or the end of the ages depending on how you interpret the passages, there is a sure and certain judgment that you are awaiting, and you will be judged according to those things which you do. You are judged according to works. You are justified by faith, but you will be judged at the end of your life according to works. And the scripture is explicit about that. We're going to look at how that translates to how we are justified by faith. How is it the case that if I'm justified by faith now, that I'm going to have to be judged in the future? Why is that and, and how, as a Christian, can I be confident? We're going to look at sin as debt. We're going to look at that metaphor, or that, that uh, scheme of, of reference, sin as debt, as trespass. They're all, you can think of sin equals debt equals trespasses. All of those three ideas, they're, they're all uh, equal. We're going to look at God's wonderful mercy, which is shown in this parable as a forgiveness of a great amount of money, a great, a great debt. We're going to look at the ignorant unforgiveness that this servant applies to his fellow servant. And the reason I say ignorant is because of what the king says concerning how this servant should have treated his fellow servant. He is acting ignorantly. I want to look at the beginning of wisdom, which Proverbs says is the fear of the Lord. And because of that, the fear of the Lord and understanding that in the light of the coming judgment, we must begin to apply this message of forgiveness to every relationship in our life. And then finally, I want to give you confidence that you aren't leaving here worried that you will be judged unrighteously, having put your faith in Christ now that you are somehow, God's going to do a bait and switch on you at, at the last day. When we say we believe in the judgment of the, the resurrection from the dead and the judgment which is coming in the creed every week, we say wonderfully because we see that as a glorious vindication of God's righteousness throughout human history as he's been saving and redeeming whole families, people, cultures. And we do not have anything to fear if we have hidden ourselves in Christ at the last judgment. And, and the last judgment will be God's vindication of his redemptive plan in saving particular ones. And so we're going to look at how God is forgiving the world through Christ Jesus, and yet man doesn't want his forgiveness and also takes his forgiveness that he would have received and he squanders it by continuing to hold on to the unforgiveness uh, toward his fellow man. So that's the, the major framework in which we're going to look at this parable, some epistles, other references from the New Testament, as well as this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. 
So Peter asks this question, and this question that Peter asks, he's basically attempting to justify himself before Jesus. He's asking this question, and he says, how many times should my brother sin against me before I stop forgiving him? As in, after like three or four times, Jesus, I think he should have gotten the point. Like, this guy keeps messing with me, and like, should I put up with this? Should I continue to to forgive him? You know, I feel like after three or four times, maybe seven at most, he should have learned his lesson. And what Jesus does in this response to this question is he gives us the greatest teaching explicitly in the scriptures of forgiveness and the nature of God's forgiveness that was bestowed upon us. And so Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. And other translations say 70 times seven. So whether you were going to 78 times or 490 times, it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying there's a lot of times that you have to forgive. Peter's suggestion of this seven times is this natural-minded view on what it means for grace to operate in human relationships. You see this very often in the, in the case of uh, friend relationships, parent-child relationships, spousal relationships, where, you know, we we get in a fight, we get in an argument, we get in some sort of frustration, and then we say, well, we've talked about this a million times before, right? A million times. As if that dismisses the fact that you've been covenantally bound to love this person. And so, we are to uh, we are to represent, we're to imitate God's forgiveness in our human relationships. That's what Jesus Christ shows us. And Christ shows us in this answer that God's grace is beyond our wildest imagination. You could never uh, naturally minded uh, say that you should forgive your brother 77 times. And now, why is this number 77 times or 70 times 7? Why is that so important? This number in the scripture is invested with very much meaning concerning fullness and perfection. We know that in the creation order, there is six days of creation, and then seventh on the seventh day, God rested. Why did he rest? Because each day he said it was good, what he had done was good, and then the final day he said it is very good concerning man and woman in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden. And at that point, he then rested because his work was full. It was complete. It was perfect. And so we see this begin to be invested with meaning, this idea of seven uh, being invested with this wonderful meaning. In Revelation, the Lamb of God has seven horns, and a horn is just a symbol in the scripture of authority and power. Uh, uh, over and over again, the prophets say that God will raise up a horn of salvation from David. And so this isn't to be understood as these sort of horns, like you think of cartoon devil horns. It's, it's a horn, it's a it's a glorification, it's an identification of this person has righteousness to wield this authority, this power, this, this justice. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, is pictured as having seven horns. He has the fullness of authority and strength and power, and he has seven eyes, which means Jesus sees he sees all the hearts of men. When he was in the Gospels, it said that Jesus was never entrusting himself to the crowds. Why? Because he knew every man. Jesus has perfect insight and therefore he can judge righteously as we're going to see throughout this message. And he also has the seven spirits of God. The manifold divine nature, in, according to Colossians chapter 1, dwells in Jesus Christ in bodily form. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. And so Jesus here is identified as fully divine, fully man, the one true sacrifice for all eternity, the one by whom God is redeeming the world to himself. And he's identified as being perfect over and over again with the number seven. 
So this, this number is important. It's the way that the scripture uses to, to explain fullness, perfection, goodness. And so Christ is about to uh, loose the seven seals in the book of Revelation. Right after this passage, he's given this scroll and there's seven seals on it. And as he unleashes these seals, he's unleashing the judgments on the land. And so this is talking about God's full judgment that is ready to come on the land because of, of their not, not acknowledging the Christ. And so this is, this is the fullness of the, the number seven. Seven is perfectly invested with perfect fullness. Anytime you see seven, uh, you, you know that it's complete. It's ready to move on to a new week. Um, so seeing this rich investment, and that's only one eighth or one-tenth of the number of times that seven is, is used in the scripture. Uh, actually, I was just downstairs at, in the last service for a minute or two, and they, they, in the law, it says that you cannot take a young, ch- a young animal from its mother until what day? The seventh day, because it needs to spend time with its mother. Uh, and so this this is over and over again in the scriptures as a pattern of forgive uh, a pattern of fullness and perfection and seeing that it's invested with such heavily meaning we can know that Jesus is saying something by saying seventy times seven he's saying that you should forgive until your forgiveness equates to or or, or mirrors God's forgiveness that he gives to us and then he begins to give a parable to show why this is the case he's saying to to Peter. You know, Peter asks for a number, and Christ is responding with a number, sort of, that says, Peter, your category of numbers is wrong. He's using this number to say, you're, you're in the wrong ballpark, you're in the wrong sports, you're on the wrong, you know, continent here. You should not be counting the number of times that you're forgiving someone until you withhold your forgiveness, as if that was somehow you know, the standard by which God relates to us. And so Jesus Christ begins to give this parable in which he's attempting to explain to Peter and to us the nature of the forgiveness which is in God, which is a perfect forgiveness. It's not a, it's not a temporary forgiveness. It's not a permitting. It's not a simple dismissal saying, oh, that didn't really hurt. That didn't really matter. You didn't really offend me. It's a true forgiveness which acknowledges the debt and sets it aside, sets it away from the account of. And that's what this parable teaches. The implication is that if Peter is still counting after he gets to 78 or 77 or 490, whatever whatever translation you're going from, either 77 times or 7 times 70 times, um, you've completely missed the point. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that love keeps no record of wrongs. If you're keeping a record of wrongs, you're not forgiving. You're continuing to operate in... Uh, in bitterness and unforgiveness, and so uh, this is this is giving us an understanding. Now, when you hear this, that you have to forgive as many times as as is required. By no means am I saying that you have to stay in abusive relationships. This is not Jesus Christ permitting uh, weak and immature people from being damaging to those around them. You can set healthy boundaries, but those boundaries are not walls in the heart which harbor unforgiveness. There are walls which guard you from abuse from others. You can say to someone in your life who's an abusive person, you can end an abusive relationship saying, I'm going to relate to you once you're ready to relate to me as a human being, made in the image of God, equally worthy as you. But you don't, you, just because you set up that boundary doesn't mean that you don't forgive them. You can forgive them and you can have boundaries. Ideally, 
we would have forgiveness and reconciliation if God's grace is manifold in the situation, but it's not always that. So, young Christian, when you hear that Christ is commanding you to forgive as many times as it requires, he's not commanding you to stay in abusive relationships where you're not treated as as a member of, of God's community, nor as one who holds his image. But you have to, no matter what happens to you, you have to forgive. So, God in his omniscience does not forget the historical event of your sins. I want to explain this very clearly. Many Christians, they believe, well, God doesn't remember your sins no anymore. In, in Psalm 103, it says that God will remember their sins no more, but it says literally that he will remove them as far as east is from the west. Now, if we're talking about the earth, that's thousands of miles. If we're talking about space-time, that's millions and billions of light years, however large the universe is. But it doesn't say that God forgets them in the sense that he doesn't remember the historical event that these sins really did take place. But rather, it means that he does not hold them on your account anymore. It says that he will blot out their transgressions. He will wipe away their iniquities. This is the, this is the language of an accounting ledger. If you've ever seen an accounting ledger, there's a record of debts. There's a record of credits or things that you have in the balance. If you've ever seen a checkbook, this is what's happening in your checkbook. Sometimes you're frustrated that the number of debts is beginning to outweigh the number of credits. Be frugal. And But the point is that what, what the terminology of the scriptures is that God is striking through the lines on your account, which are debts. And that is all you have in this parable. All you have is debts. There's no credit given to this servant. He owes a massive debt, and God is, to, is considered as wiping them away, scratching them through, and then maybe even taking an eraser or some sort of solvent to get rid of the ink. He's, he's removing it from your account. And so this is the language of accounting in which Jesus uses uh, to describe this parable to tell us of the nature of sin. So the power to fulfill this high call of total forgiveness does not rest in you. When Jesus Christ says to this uh, to to us here that unless you forgive from your heart, so will my Father do for everyone, he's not saying that you must find the grace in and of yourself to forgive these people, but rather, according to the way that this parable uh, is is laid out, you should use the forgiveness that is given to you by God. As the, as the means of grace by which you extend forgiveness to others. It is not in your power to even be able to do this, and even if it was, your power is limited, and sin is mightily uh, destructive. You would be exhausted, your grace or your, if, you, if it were up to your own power, your own energy would be fully exhausted through, throughout even one day of, of life, having to forgive your brothers and sisters. And so this is the set up that we are to take hold of God's grace. This is the framework in which we're going to look at this parable. At the beginning of the parable, Christ shows the heart of God. He says that the kingdom of heaven will be likened unto, unto a king who wished to settle accounts. Many people think that God is at war with man, and they, they have a wrong conception of who God is. God is a holy and righteous God who is eternally existing, that he's his own cause, he's his own reason for his existence, whereas, whereas you and I, we have been caused by the actions of our parents and the will of God. He is his own eternally existent, self-sustaining, self-loving and giving person. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, dwelt in harmony, unity and love and peace for all eternity. And 
From that love, they overflowed into a creation and invested it with goodness. Remember, we talked about the creation, six days in which God pronounces over the created order, good. And then at the final day, when he makes us, he invests us with his image, and then he says, very good. And so God creates the world with original goodness, and what happens? Man very soon begins a rebellion. Man's told one command, do not eat from this particular tree in the garden, but rather every other tree is for your food. And Satan comes, a serpent comes, which we know to be Satan. He comes in and convinces even Adam that they should, instead of obeying God's law and ruling the garden as vice regents or, or governors for God on God's behalf, they should take matters into their own hands and attempt to attain uh, the, the, the divine status of God. The serpent says that God knows that in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will be like him. What's the lie? They began to believe that they were not like him, and yet they were invested in his, with his image and likeness. They were already like him, and so they attempt to reach for something that's not yet theirs. I believe that God would have eventually given them the ability to eat from the tree of life and that we would have dwelt throughout the you know, throughout the ages with, with God eternally, but that's not what God wanted to do in his sovereign will. And so we, we have this wrong conception of God. We think God is like Thor with this mighty hammer and he's ready to smash all of mankind. That's not what Jesus is saying in this parable. He's saying the king eagerly wants to settle the accounts, but he doesn't want to settle the accounts because he's run out of money. He wants to settle the accounts because he wants harmony back in his kingdom. And the reason why I'm so uh, eager to, to hammer this point home is that you must understand the nature of God in coming to, to exercise judgment in bringing these accounts to, to a close. I want to read something I didn't put in the slides, but everyone knows John 3.16, that, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world, not to condemn them, but that they would have everlasting life. Verse 17 that's a paraphrase quote. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Jesus says that the, parab the, the kingdom is like a king who wants to settle accounts, he's saying this. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, that is God's son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And here is where judgment happens. We always think that the problem is on God's end, but the problem is not on God's end. Verse 19, and this is the judgment, or you could say this is the outcome. This was the result of Christ coming into the world with a free offer of forgiveness by which all men might turn to know him. And he says, and this is the judgment John testifies, or Jesus says explicitly here, and John has faithfully quoted, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness more than the light. That's the judgment, according to John and according to Jesus Christ. And so when you hear that God is wanting to settle accounts, it's not because he wants to smash all of humanity into obliteration. He wants his children back. And he's eager that they would come to the throne and acknowledge that he is able to forgive them. And he offers this forgiveness in the parable, and look at what happens. This, this servant wants to kind of hold on to this little amount of money instead of receiving and then extending that forgiveness. So, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, a king who's coming to forgive, who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. The king is a symbol of God, and God wishes to settle accounts with mankind, and God will not permit man to rebel forever. 
Man rebelled at the fall, and man continued to rebel throughout all of history. If you want to see a history of that, read the, the Old Testament scriptures, especially Israel's waywardness. Even those who God chooses and begins to prepare and bring into maturity, they still rebel and turn away from him. Not only does Christ warn us, but Paul also encourages the, the Galatians, do not be deceived, Galatians 6-7, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, one will also reap. It is a law. If you invest, you get a return. If you invest according to the flesh, you will reap according to the flesh. If you sow in the spirit, you will reap life and peace. That's another one of the epistles, which we won't quote today, but Paul's exhortation of the Corinthians, for we all must appear. That's pretty inclusive. That's what we call totalizing language. There is no one outside of this Description, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, both good and evil. Okay, all must appear. And this judgment is according to works. The Hebrew writer also instructs and warns, and he says in, in Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once, after that comes the judgment. Now, I don't know if the Hebrew writer is implying that immediately comes the judgment or he's just thinking of what's happening to this person, but there is a judgment that comes after the death of a person. Finally, Paul's warnings to the Athenians in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. So God is, is wiping away the slate. He's saying that I'm going to overlook, I'm going to set aside the, these former times, but now he commands, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He is harbor. Uh, he is uh, uh, leaning over the balcony of heaven and shouting to all of creation, "Be reconciled!" And man says, "No." Man, men shake their fists at God and say, "No, we won't have it." He has fixed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Who is this man? Paul says plainly, "This he has given assurance to all." by raising him from the dead. God has determined to judge the world by Jesus Christ, and on that day, all men will be judged according to those things that they have done in the body, whether good or for evil. Now, how does that reconcile? How does that mesh with, how do we harmonize that with the gospel of grace in which you and I are given a free call, a free, true, and good will offering of reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus Christ? How does that work? It's important for you to know, because if you don't know how it meshes and you read one of these verses, you will fear God in such a way as to run from him. But we know God's, the fear of God is uh, ultimately designed to bring us closer to him. And so it's important for us to see this. But rest assured, no matter what your understanding is, you will stand before Jesus Christ on the last day and you will be judged. It is a sure thing. Knowing that it's good and right for God to judge, we continue with the parable. We see God's heart. He wants men to be reconciled. And we also see God warning all men that there is a judgment coming. These two things, he wants us to come to him. And he's also warning, but if you don't, there is a, there is a sure judgment. This causes us to seek him. And God's judgment of man in this parable is seen as a settling of accounts, right? We talked about this language of accounting. Sins are represented in this parable as being uh, uh, debts. They're, they're amounts of money which have been used up, they've been borrowed, they've been uh, 
something's happened, uh, maybe perhaps the servant broke something or destroyed something, and rather than the king judging him right away, he just wrote down the, what has happened. And so this servant is, has used up this amount of money, and um, we look at, at the immediate beginning of this settling, and it says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had. The amount of this debt is staggering. Now, I'm not going to go into some sort of math thing right now and, and say, well, a talent is equal to this. The point is that this is millions of dollars. This is decades worth of wages. In today's money, this is more money than probably anyone in this church has. Uh, and, and understanding that, we see that this is a debt that this man cannot pay at all. And because of this, this debt begins to come down on those who he's related to. The sins which we commit against God are not trivial, but weigh heavily. They're not, they're not light. They're not ethereal. They're not just kind of feelings as if God needs to get over it, as if he's being uh, childish in counting these sins against him as, as really incurring a debt. And so this debt as, as, is massive, and it begins to fall on the wife, the children, and everything that he has. This is speaking of the totalizing nature of sin, that it begins to affect every area, every dimension of life. And so here we see debt as a staggering and uh, depressing level of, of debt. This is God saying through a parable that sin is utterly sinful. It's not trivial. It's not a matter of opinion. It's utterly evil and wicked. And this debt will crush this servant, and it'll crush his family. It'll crush everything that he has. They will not be able to pay. The debt causes despair, and there's nothing that this man can do. Thanks be to God that this is not the end of the parable. If this were the end of, parable, of the parable, none of us would have any hope in the world. Because you and I are exactly like this man. man. We have debts which are insurmountable. And so here we see God, the king, beginning to grant forgiveness to this person. So the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the king, the, the master of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. He was going to throw him in jail. He was going to order that his wife and children be sold and that everything that he has be liquidated in order to pay even a small fraction of this debt. So immediately, um, this man goes out and uh, begins to do something that we see as being ignorant. But before we move on, I want you to, again, remember the language of accounting. This servant has a debt for some reason. He either borrowed the money from the king and didn't pay it back, or he damaged something of the king's property, and that, and that uh, amount of debt was wiped away. Who knows what happens when you wipe something out on a ledger? You have to get that money from somewhere else. And so what is the king doing by wiping out the debt that is on this servant? He is saying, I will assume the debt, right? Tim Keller, the guy who wrote the book that I just received, he has a wonderful saying. He says that love always takes the hit. And what that means is that when you have a situation in which there is sin in a relationship, if you're to operate and respond in love, it means being willing to lay down your pride, to be offended, to take the hit. Love always takes the hit. I think it's a good saying. And so this great debt has been removed from the account of the servant, and it really was a debt. It really was a use of money. 
Now, I want to stress that point, not because I think that God's justice is like a series of, of debts, but rather because that's what this parable is banked on. That's what this parable rests on. And so Jesus is describing this forgiveness, the king taking the debt on himself, as the way in which the king wants to settle the accounts. It's not a kingdom of poverty. It's a kingdom of grace in which this king wants harmony and peace to operate. He doesn't want his servants to go around living like slaves forever. He wants them to come to him. He wants them to to truly live. And so this king takes on the debt himself, but look at what happens to this servant. He operates in what I would like to call ignorant unforgiveness. It's It's unforgiveness which always comes from not knowing about the forgiveness that God gives him. This is what happens to those who show disdain for the mercy of God. Hebrews chapter 6 says that if we trample underfoot the blood of Christ, there no longer remains an offering. It's the last hope we have. And so if, if this servant doesn't recognize the grace that's been given him by being forgiven by God and allow that grace to become forgiveness for others, he will never be able to be reconciled to this master. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, seized him, pay what you owe. Verse 29, this fellow servant fell down. He did the exact same thing. Remember what happened? This initial servant, he falls down on his knees and he asks for mercy. And at this point, if, even if it hadn't entered into his mind before, he should have remembered. He should have thought to himself, oh, I've seen this tape before. I know how this ends or I know how it should end but he doesn't. He says, verse 30, uh, he refused and went and put him in prison. He takes him with a chokehold grip. This is a tenacious unforgiveness. This is not an unforgiveness which is casual. This isn't just a, uh, a little tiny trivial thing. This is a heart that is bent on holding the debt, the small amount of money that somebody else has owed you uh, and never letting it go. Now, remember, we're not going to get into the math again, but the, the millions of dollars is contrasted here with pocket change. This is like finding a $20 bill in your pocket, a, a great thing. I love doing that. Um, I pray that it happens to you and me more. But, but here, this is pocket change. This is, this is like half a day's wages. This is like uh, a few hours or a favor or buying lunch a few times. This amount of debt is so trivial, and so it shows us not only... That sin is debt, but it also shows us how great that sin against God is considered. This fellow servant, even though this is a small debt, is acting tenaciously with a chokehold grip, not letting go, wrestling this man down until he's broken. Isn't a human being worth more than a few dollars? Or at least it should be. He should be. She should be. The kingdom, the king of this kingdom is not blind and he sees what's happening. The way he sees is that these other servants, their fellow servants, come and tell the king. And then in verse 32, then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you. Look at that phrase, you wicked servant. This king is pronouncing a judgment on how this person has behaved. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that, that, that debt because you pleaded with me. Verse 33, and should you not have had mercy on you, your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. It goes without saying, but how much money do you make in jail? Very little. He'll be in jail for a while. The king rightly judges the servant as being wicked because he has not forgiven his fellow servant, especially in the light of the massive debt that he was forgiven. 
The king says that he's wicked, and then the king makes a judgment. He makes a reasoning. He says something that shows us how the king thinks about how his kingdom should operate. The king says that the forgiveness that he had should have translated into forgiveness for the servant's fellow man. You may remember uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he says he has a dream, and then he begins to, to quote Malachi, that justice would roll down like waters. I don't believe in a trickle-down economy, but I do believe in trickle-down justice, and I think the parable teaches it, that the justice, the, the forgiveness, the mercy that God has given you should be extended to others. It should roll down. And so this king is very angry, and this servant is acting ignorantly. He's living as if he had never even remembered or never had experienced this forgiveness at all. He's acting as without any knowledge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that some, the ones who are living in Corinth, who are still sinning after being justified, that they have no knowledge of God, that they're acting ignorantly. And he says that he says this to their shame. Because it's not the case. Once you hear the message of forgiveness, you should act accordingly. At the end of the parable, Christ himself gives us the interpretive key by which we've been reading the parable. If you think that my interpretation has been contrived, it's not my interpretation. Jesus plainly gives a key or a legend to a map on how to, to navigate this parable. Jesus says in verse 35, Matthew 18, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. He's identifying the king with the father the servants as mankind, you and I, the debts owed are sins and trespasses, and that's a, a common New Testament idiom as well as Old Testament, that sin and debt and trespasses are all the same thing. In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew, it says to lead us not into temptation and what? Forgive us our debts. If you read the King James, it might have been trespasses. And then right after that, he says, uh, you know, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. And he uses the language of sins, but he had just used the language of debts and trespasses or offenses. And so these are equal things in the scriptures. So rightly, we know that we should not go on sinning by holding out unforgiveness to our brothers. Seeing this parable and the warning from Jesus Christ that the father will do to us, just like this servant, we should not go on harboring unforgiveness. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, verse uh, nine of, or sorry, eleven of Second Corinthians five. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is Paul saying what the motivation for the apostolic team that he's working with in Corinth is. He's saying that our motivation is we know the fear of the Lord. We know there is a judgment coming. Therefore, we're persuading others. We're we're pleading with people to hide in Christ and yet they're unwilling to hear. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The reason he says this is because Corinth, although having been founded by apostles, are throwing off the authority of the apostles. They have these other people who've come into Corinth and started preaching some other stuff instead of the forgiveness of God through Christ. And he says he's defending himself, and he's defending their authority to instruct the Corinthians and he then says, like John, that they don't know what they are now, but they will be revealed when Christ comes to judge, right? In John, First uh, John, it says, we do not know even what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so the idea here is that this apostle is defending his right to warn them of a coming judgment in light of, of this 
kind of war that's going on for the authority in the Corinthian church. And so he's not commending himself, but rather warning people. The, one of the ways that you know whether uh, an apostolic leader is, is rightly commending themselves or rightly teaching the gospel is whether or not they ever give a warning of what will happen to those who do not avail themselves of Jesus Christ. Proverbs tells us that the beginning of, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that fear leads somewhere. It leads to knowing God. Paul says that the gospel, the plan of God to forgive men by the death of Christ, is the secret wisdom of God not known by the ages, right? Do you remember that phrase possibly from the, the New Testament epistles? I think it's in Colossians, but I'm not sure. The secret wisdom of God not known by man. Natural man had not seen God's plan but they were eventually availed of such information because Jesus Christ had come and died. And then after that, he had sent his apostles into the world, preaching a message of forgiveness and repentance in the name of Jesus. Therefore, the gospel must include a warning of coming judgment that men should seek and flee for refuge in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, the New Testament uses this idea that we are hiding ourselves in Christ, that we are seeking refuge in Christ that we are fleeing from the wrath to come by hiding in Christ. That's what the, the New Testament over and over again demonstrates as one way to see the, the gospel, one way to see uh, uh, getting saved, if you will. And so this parable may seem to indicate that God's mercy comes right after this man's uh, pleas. Remember, the man gets on his knees, he pleads, uh, he, he makes a plea to, to this king, and he says, have forgiveness, and then the king grants that forgiveness. But, but one of the things when you're learning how to interpret parables, it's important that you make a careful observation of the explicit details and what's said explicitly or what's just inferred. Now, from the parable, it may look like the king decided to have mercy upon this servant, but we know rightly the plan of God at the heart of John chapter 3, knowing that the king is coming to bring a, a judgment of mercy and forgiveness, that it's not the case that the, that the king is responding to the plea or the, the cry for mercy, but rather had always wanted to grant it. And the reason I know that, the reason we can clearly know that is because of what the rest of the scripture says, the rest of our reading as well, about how God went about the business of granting forgiveness to all men. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. If a person is about to die and they, let's say they've been stabbed or shot up or there's some sort of terrible situation, they are probably in a state where they're not able to do anything about it. Occasionally, you hear of stories in which some people miraculously drive themselves to the hospital after being stabbed or getting in a major car accident, right? Because why? They're still alive. They can still do things. What does Paul say concerning these believers? In Colossians, it says, you were dead. I don't know about you, but dead people don't do anything at all. They just stay dead. That's their job. It's in, unless they're resurrected, they're going to stay there. May that be our testimony in the future. God makes them alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. You see that? Forgiven us all of our trespasses? How do you forgive trespasses? I thought you forgave debts. This is the way of the, the scriptures is saying they're equal. 
these ideas should be the same. By canceling what? The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I want you to pay careful attention to that phrase. He nailed what to the cross? The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. When we were dead and couldn't help ourselves in any way, God God makes us alive together with Christ. It is his doing. John chapter 1 says that God granted the right to become sons of God to those who believed in Jesus Christ, and it said, not of the will of man, but rather the will of God. Think about the the metaphor. You are a child of God. God grants you that right by adopting you. But think about naturally, children do not exist because of their will, right? They exist because of the product of their parents. It was their parents' decision to beget children. It took someone else's action for that person to come into the world. And so here we see that God is reconciling mankind through Jesus Christ, and he's making this grace available, but it is not because of our pleas, but rather because of God's goodness. It was totally his desire that he would be reconciled to the world, that the world would would end their rebellion, and that they would acknowledge the mercy that is through Jesus Christ. So make a note of what was nailed to the cross. Knowing that we will be judged by a perfect holy, righteous man who knew no sin, who never at all had any flaw in his character, personality, or emotions, he will judge rightly. And so, how does this not cause our hearts to fail? To me, when I hear that, I'm tempted, just even for a brief moment at most, or or even longer, I'm tempted to have a little bit of fear. But why can I confidently say that you have nothing to fear at the judgment seat of Christ is because what God says takes place when you're made alive with him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You will be judged according to what you have done, but you are not judged according to your old record, but rather you're judged according to a new record. And that new record is not what you do in and of your own strength, but rather that record is used as a confirmation, a set of evidence which attests to one fact only. The criteria by which you are judged is not what you did in the body, the actual sins, but rather how you respond to one thing. All this, verse 18, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that is the apostles, the ministry of reconciliation. That that apostle, that apostolic reconciliation ministry, which they used to go into these churches, to to these geographic areas and start preaching the gospel, that becomes the individual Christian's calling, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Man starts the rebellion, God calls man back. God reconciles the world back not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And Christ also teaches in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Now, wait a second. Jesus, you're saying you don't come into judgment if you believe on him, but I just heard all the rest of the apostles as well as you say that there is a coming judgment at the end of my life. How do those mesh? Brothers and sisters, the scripture cannot be broken. Whenever you see a potential contradiction in the scriptures, you must 
dig deeper. What Jesus Christ is saying here in does not come into judgment is properly understood as does not fall under judgment. Remember that image of a gavel or Thor's hammer? He's saying that those who believe in Jesus Christ do not fall under. They don't get smashed by the rock, but rather they're founded on the rock. And so here, Jesus is saying they don't fall under condemnation. They don't come into judgment, not that they're not judged. They don't fall into judgment in such a way as to stumble permanently. Then why is the, if that's the case, then why is the need for a final judgment? What's this whole business? If Jesus says, I've already passed from death and into life, if Corinthians says that I'm a new creation and the old has passed away, then why is there a coming judgment? We have to consider what God wishes to do at the end of the age by judging the world through one man. God wishes to be seen as glorious and gracious for all eternity. And it will be, your judgment will be a public confirmation that those things which you did in the body, you did not do of your own accord, but because of the righteousness which God freely granted to you. The one thing that you will be judged by is, did you avail yourself of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ or not? And everything else which you will be, which will be replayed, which will be represented, is simply confirming evidence for that or not. Now, again, you do not have to worry whether you have enough evidence. Remember the thief on the cross? Jesus said to him, the one who turned, the one who trusted, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. What evidence did that man have? 99.9% of that man's life was murder, stealing, pillaging, theft, envy, jealousy. What was the only evidence at his judgment, whether it took place right after he died or whether it's coming? It was just that he responded. And that is the only criteria which is going to matter. The reason we know this is because of what Revelation teaches concerning those who are judged righteously. It says that the books, the multiple books, are opened and, it, and they're judged according to what they did, whether good or evil. But it also says concerning those who go off into sin or those who remain faithful to, to God, uh, the distinguishing factor is not whether what's happening in those books, but rather what's happening in one book, the book of the lamb who was slain. If their names are found in that book, then they're judged righteously. And so what we would have identified as those who have our names in the book of life, that will be the major uh, unveiling. God will demonstrate himself as righteous and gracious and will testify to all eternity and all of the universe, every soul who had ever lived, that these are the righteous ones who responded. These are the ones who I've called, chosen, and sanctified. And it will be a public confirmation that God is gracious. And so that is why there is a final judgment at the end of the age. Our judgment will serve as a public confirmation of our trust in and union of Christ on the basis of his payments of our debts. Not on the basis of what we have done, but rather on the basis of trust that he is true. The righteousness which will be demonstrated at the judgment is not of our own making. And I want to make sure you fully understand that. The righteousness which comes at the judgment is not of your own making. It's because of a, a righteousness which is alien to you. It's foreign to you. It comes to you and it's freely bestowed. And the reason we know this is because of the great exchange which happens at the cross, which is the last portion of scripture we're looking at today. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. Therefore, we, Paul's apostolic team, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Who's he writing to? Where is this letter going to be read? It's going to be read in the Corinthian church. It's going to be read to Christians. It's going to be read to people who already should have been reconciled to God. He says, we appeal to you, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Okay, imagine the, the, the huge uh, meaning that is invested in this. He's, Paul is saying that God made Christ who knew no sin to be considered as sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God because of this fact that he who knew no sin became sin. God considered him as sin. Remember what Colossians 2 says, that the record of debts which he had, which stood against us with its legal demands, he nailed that to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross and God considers him to be the payment of your debts. Those debts which you incurred through your rebellion against him. And this is what Paul says. He says here that God has set aside this record. He says that he made him who knew no sin to be considered as sin so that you could receive the righteousness of God. This great exchange that you have a massive amount of debt and you will never be able to pay it off. And yet he wipes it away. And not only does he wipe it away, but he also gives you the gracious righteousness of himself. Not a righteousness of your own making, not a righteousness which you have to be worried to earn, to pray enough, to fast enough, to do enough miracles, to do as many good things for other people as you can, but rather the righteousness that comes from trusting in Christ, not in your own effort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty forgiveness. We ask you, Lord, even right now, that you would begin to bring to mind people that we need to forgive from the bottom of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the Holy Spirit, that he would, through all of our days, remind us to walk in forgiveness continually. That as we go through this life, that we would not harbor bitterness against anyone, so as to demonstrate that we are acting ignorantly of your forgiveness. God, I pray that this would become precious and sweet to us, that we would see your great grace as taking away all of our debts, paying them completely, taking them upon yourself and giving to us life and righteousness. We pray, Lord, that we would warn every man who would be willing to hear that they need to hide in Christ, that they need to take refuge, that they need to run under your tower and be saved. God, I pray that you would grant to us boldness in warning men that they are headed towards destruction unless they turn. And God, I also thank you that this was not because of something that we've done, because Lord, we know that we were running from you for, for all of our lives, but Lord, it's something that you have done in bringing us to yourself. We thank you for your kind heart, which sent your son into the world to save the world. Lord, we pray that, that we would be those who respond. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.